0: You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the only podcast that is officially considered penance for venial sins by the Roman Catholic Church. Well, okay, not really.
1: Oh, well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know not everybody has got a body like me. Heart away, And I know all the games you play Cause I play them too Oh, but I need some time off From that emotion Time to pick my heart up off the floor When oh, that love comes down Without devotion Well, it takes a song and baby, but I'm Showing you that door, rock.
0: Hello and welcome to another heady, transcendental episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This, as always, is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics, running from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Reiner, two awesome Green Lanterns who never seem to get the spotlight shined on them as much as they should. And this time, the spotlight we're going to be shining on them isn't really the spotlight they'd like to have shining. It's the spotlight of darkness and entropy. As we cover the last part of the three part story of the third law in Green Lantern number 35, which in a weird way ties in with the crisis on and Earth. And in Guy Gardner, we deal with the spotlight of Guy getting, well, shined a laser sight on him as he's targeted for assassination by Goldface's goons. Yeah, Guy's gonna go after Goldface. But, spoiler alert in place, these are two really good issues, and I can't wait to get into them. So we're going to go ahead and take a little break here, play a couple of promos for some podcasts that you all should be listening to. And when we get back, we're going to start our coverage of Green Lantern number 35, which thankfully wraps up the storyline with the new Guardians. And hopefully this is the last we'll see it. Uh, ah, huh.
1: Let's get this show on the road, gang.
0: I'm Batman.
1: This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays, available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. In a world where planets die, I have come to the conclusion Krypton is doomed. Did I hear him right? Where good and evil fight a never ending battle but millions of people will die millions once again the press underestimates me one man
0: will become a hero
1: every world needs its heroes clark they inspire us to be better than we are and they protect us from the darkness that's just around the corner
0: one man will rise to the challenge look up in the sky One man will wear spandex.
1: Well, one thing's for sure, nobody's going to be looking at your face. Mom? Well, they don't call them tights for nothing.
0: (laughs) Presenting the thrilling adventures of Superman podcast looking at the Man of Steel's history via his earliest adventures in comics, radio, and film. Featuring reviews, commentary, creator spotlights, and more. Join the adventure at GreatCrypton.com. And we're back. Hey, if any of you other fellow podcasters out there have a new promo for your show that you'd like to have featured on this show, I'd be more than willing to put it up. some of the ones I have are in kind of old rotation. I try and get through as many of them as I can. So if you do have a new promo that you'd like to hear on the show, uh, go ahead and send me an email at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you can link me the uh, promo in the email, or if you can send me the promo via the email, I'd be more than happy to put it on the show. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And speaking of the email, let's go ahead and check out the email bag and see what we've got this time around. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this week we've got an email from the indomitable pre- blah, the indomitable Professor Allen. He of the Book Guys podcast, and also a big fan of Doctor Doom. Who, if you aren't a big fan of Doctor Doom, I suggest you become one, or Doom will destroy you. Uh, Professor Allen writes, Hey Sean, I wondered if you've ever read the GL Sleepers trilogy of novel- novels that Christopher Priest wrote a few years ago. I actually listened to them, just the first two, but the third is on my short list of the graphic audio adaptations. Anyway, it tells the connected story, but each novel focuses on a different Green Lantern. Kyle, Allen, and Hal. No guy, no John. Which commentary is disappointing, but so be it. The Kyle, Allen, and Hal the big ones at the time. Back to his letter. He says, these stories are out of continuity, but the Kyle Connection might interest you, either personally or for the show. He says, by the way, I'm expecting a new just one of the guys bright and early tomorrow. Stay professional and don't be late. Thanks, Professor Allen. Uh, Hopefully you caught the uh, last episode out on Friday and hopefully it was on time and intact and everything. Uh, If you haven't listened to Professor Allen's show with uh, Paul Alves and the Padre and Sir Jimmy, I believe it is. Uh, it's a show called The Book Guys Podcast. It's available on iTunes, and it's a really great show. They cover all types of books. They cover comic books. They cover podcasts. Really great show and really fun. Uh, they've got a great dynamic there. and it, It's one of the podcasts I just discovered a while back, and I'm really enjoying the heck out of it. So go check out The Book Guys Podcast if you can. But... Um, To answer Professor Allen's email, unfortunately, I haven't read the GL Sleepers thing. But I remember, I think Michael Bailey may have talked about it on one of his shows. I'm thinking views from the long box, and I'm not certain if it was in his uh, Green Lantern Cavalcade thing that he did with Thomas DJ, or whether it was the uh, Blackest Night show. But I think he mentioned it in one of his shows. And Michael's always been a big promotant proponent of the graphic audio books. So I definitely need to go and check those out, especially if they're dealing with the Green Lantern, especially especially if they're dealing with Kyle, because I, I'd love to hear what kind of story they have, and especially if the three interlink, uh, it might be an interesting little listen. Uh, graphic audio, as far as I've heard, puts out great stuff, so Professor Allen, thank you for the uh, mention of it, and I'm going to have to go and check those out. But that finishes email for this time around. If you guys would like to email in, uh, the email address will be at the end of the episode, or I'll just tell it to you now. It's just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Write in. You can also post on the podcast website, uh, com, And hopefully I'll get some more emails and read them to you next time. And I appreciate, again, every one of you guys writing in, and again, every one of you guys listening. Like I've said before, Emails truly validate what I'm doing, and even if I don't get emails, just looking at the fact that people download the show and listen to it really, really impresses me and really makes me appreciate you guys. Thank you all very much. Okay, enough silly butt-kissery out of the way. I'm going to head into Greenlander number 35, which is cover dated January 1993, with a release date on November 24th of 1992. The cover price for the issue was $1.25 U.S., $1.50 Canada, and 60 pence U.K. The title this time around was Third Law Part 3, Act of Faith. The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler M.D. Bright, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert de Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Telling the bodacious Boudicca that attacking entropy will only take years away from her life, Green Lantern Hal Jordan tries to restrain her as the giant dark entity monologues about how he will destroy the guardians of the universe. Entropy's threats are broken by the arrival of the remaining Green Lanterns, led by John Stewart. He, Chaselon, Larbox, and Nort take their best shots at the towering terror, but Entropy knocks Nort down with a beam of darkness and grabs John in his humongous fist. John prepares to fire a blast to the face of his enemy. But Hal steps in the way, giving the same warning to John as he did to Boudica, when suddenly Hal is blasted by one of the beams shot by Entropy's soldiers. The blast causes Hal to start hearing voices telling him to free them from their black imprisonment. Dissension is starting to grow in the core, with Hal and John admitting they have their own secrets they've kept from the other lanterns. Entropy tries to foment this discord, until Canthet says that the Guardians must give their protectors the reason behind all of this big-headed blue guy relates the idea of the Big Bang as well as the Big Crunch, which will eventually collapse the universe. But Krona, the Malthusian who went back in time to research the beginnings of the universe, speeded up the amount of energy lost by wiping out a billion years of time. And without this lost energy, the universe won't be able to be reborn in the Big Crunch. The Guardian's main job was to maintain order in the universe to conserve the remaining amount of energy. ...in order to allow the universe to eventually reform. Entropy then taunts the Guardians as he begins smashing the central power battery. Losing their power, the Lanterns again ask for the truth about what they're fighting... ...and Gantet finally reveals that their foe is none other than Crona. Saying that this Krona was transformed by the Malthusian... The lack is spock, ...and his accompanying explosion, the Guardians claim that his desire to prove himself right... ...will cause the destruction of the universe... Still being plagued by the voices in his head, Hal tries to focus as the rest of the Corps looks to him for leadership. Trying to convince him, Ganthed approaches Hal and tells him that this is all part of the Guardians' grand design. Their departure and return all coincided with happenings in the universe, and Hal and the rest of the Corps simply must trust them. Not certain what to do, Hal gives his patent speech about all he has to fall back on is his faith. Faith that he's made the right decision in coming in Green Lantern. And faith that their cause is right, even though they know they're not fully aware of what that cause is. And with that, the Twelve Lanterns fly off to engage their massive foe. The core attacks entropy, but it isn't until he starts monologuing about disorder that Hal comes up with a plan. Tapping into entropy via a ring beam, how contacts Betty Klamath, the new guardian who resides in the dream time. She connects Hal with the other chosen, who are working to bring down Entropy from within by creating their own internal order. Telling Hal that they're doing this to save the sum of all individuals, they release Hal, who promptly gets sucker punched by the behemoth batty. Knowing what the core must do, Hal has them work as one, firing a unified beam of energy at Entropy, dissolving him and his soldiers. Crisis averted. and the new Guardians back, the actual Guardians thank Hal and the rest of the Corps. Revealing the reasoning behind the inclusion of Lord in the Corps, the story is wrapped up, the Green Lanterns coming to the conclusion that being a hero doesn't always mean doing what's right or making the right decision, just making the best decision and sticking to it. Okay, not that there's many people out there today who are saying that comic books or or like comic books, pardon me, are specifically for kids. This would be an issue where I'd have to say that it's definitely not for kids. Not because it deals with adult themes or anything racy or lewd, but because it deals with some pretty heady issues. Not only the issue of faith and who you should put that faith in, but also the issue of oh, very sort of heady concepts like the laws of thermodynamics and the Big Bang Theory and all these other very scientific very scientific ideas that wouldn't readily be talked about in comic books in the modern days unless it's someone just sort of throwing it out in a way to sort of techno-babble it up. Again, it shows, in my opinion, the creative well, not genius, but the creative knowledge that Gerard Jones is bringing in these comics. He's not only making them interesting comics to read, but he's making you have to engage yourself and have some knowledge about, well, what's going on to be able to fully enjoy the book. And I, I like that in comics. But with that, let's go ahead and head on to notes. And unfortunately, the cover here doesn't really live up to the premise of the intelligence that Jones is trying to put together in his writing. They've got the yellow buildings again, which I've harped on all the time. However, at this point in time, the central power battery, the source of the Green Lantern energy that is nullified by the color yellow is sitting right on top of a yellow structure or road or something. I think I think the artists are just screwing with us now. They're, they're, they're not even trying, and it's... I don't know why this is. I don't know whether this was mandated or what, but it's just silliness. If yellow affects the rings, why can the Green Lantern power battery be placed on something yellow? doesn't make any sense. Page 2, panel 5, after John catches Nord in a ring construct net, he tells Larvox and Chase Lon to run a red right right tight, curl X up, and whatever. Then he's interrupted by being grabbed by entropy. And I don't know who was mentioning this, but someone had said that they don't like when superheroes call out attack patterns to their uh, groups, that it just doesn't work. you know. It works in the confines of, say, military people, and yes, I know that the Green Lantern Corps is kind of a, well, military police organization, but the idea that they have different fighting techniques that they can just call out at a moment's notice just doesn't really work for me. Page six, panel one, we give Ganthit giving the reasoning behind why the Guardians are essentially here, and I'll go ahead and read it to you, because it's kind of hard to explain just right out. It says, Ganthus says, The universe, or this universe, will explode in a new Big Bang. Thus it has been forever, thus it will be forever. But the terrible experiment of Krona speeded up the loss of usable energy by a billion years, which was related in Greenlander number 40. And he says, Not much time in the cosmic scale but enough that there will be too little mass and gravity left at the end of this cycle to create the next singularity. The Guardians have made it their mission to reduce conflict and disaster in the universe, to build structures of peace and efficiency that will enable our depleted cosmos to preserve its precious energy. We've calculated our work and can preserve just enough to sustain the infinite. So essentially, the reasoning behind the Guardians being is to maintain the eternal cycle of the universe expanding then collapsing into a singularity again. It's a kind of nutty explanation, but for the concept of the Green Lantern Corps and this book, it works. And I applaud them for actually using uh, scientific ideas such as the Big Bang and the Big Crunch in a silly, you know, four-color comic book. That speaks a lot to the writers here. Page 7, panel 3. It's a really good reveal that the villain... Entropy is actually Crona, which, until I reread this book, I'd completely forgotten about. I had no idea that he came back, especially that he came back as this entity, and how it sort of relates into the entire not only Green, Lan- Green Lantern universe, but the entire DC universe as a whole. Since essentially the Anti Monitor wouldn't have basically come into existence without the experiments of Crona. So, it's a nice callback to uh, DC continuity of pre-Crisis era. Or, I guess, of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths era. Pages 12 and 13, we get a really nice two-page splash of all the Green Lanterns uh, charging at entropy. Uh, It's really great. This would have, probably at the time, made a really good poster. The unfortunate thing for it, no Guy Gardner. (sighs) Well, he's got his own book, so... I. Guess that's called comfort. Page 16, panel 5, we get an image of Betty Clawman, who, I guess, as I didn't really read the New Guardians book, is one of the New Guardians who passed away, I guess, during the series, and was enveloped in the dream time, which is this sort of ephemeral, sort of limbo-type state. But here she's trying to contact Al and tell him what the Chosen are trying to do, and for all intents and purposes, her image looks a lot like Diana Ross from The Wiz. If any of you remember that 1970s version of the movie with Michael Jackson as the scarecrow and Nipsey Russell as the tin man, it was a good movie and had a pretty good soundtrack to it. And it was that time before Michael Jackson was sort of... <sighs> before Michael Jackson got... Yeah, it was a really good adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, and again, it was back in a time when Michael Jackson wasn't really a freak. (sighs) Sad. Next on page 17, panel 1, we see the outlines of the faces of the Chosen, and to be honest, I've never seen the faces of the Chosen. I haven't read Millennium, so I don't know who these people are supposed to be. From... What I've read or what I've listened to on another couple of podcasts, in fact, Dave Walker has been covering the Millennium comic books and his podcast Flash Legacies over the past well couple of weeks, and from what I gathered, the Chosen actually became the New Guardians. So I don't know why the New Guardians are protecting the Chosen when I thought they became them, Again, this is something I'm really not up on. So, if anyone has any explanation of what's going on here, please write in or you know leave a comment at the board and let me know because it's all mystery to me. Page 18, panel six, is entropy, or I guess we know Crona, the giant entity, is who's fighting the Green Lanterns. Monologue's on. He says, "And the third law, the per- that perfect peace can only come." Through absolute entropy. Now, if I recall the third law of thermodynamics, and I'm probably not creating, I'm probably not quoting this correctly, is that an object in motion tends to stay in motion, or an object at rest tends to stay at rest until a force is acted upon it. So, I don't exactly know how that jibes with what entropy is saying. Maybe he's just babbling on to try and make the Lanterns feel all freaked out. Then on page 20, panel 2, oh, thank goodness, the uh, new Guardians survive. Well, that's wonderful, because now we'll be able to follow their exploits throughout the entire DC universe, and see what magic and wonder they... Oh, wait, no, I meant, I'm sorry, we'll get to watch them fall into obscurity. Poor new Guardians. Page 21, panel 1, we get an explanation for why Nort was included in the Green Lantern Corps. And uh Ganthet explains to Hal that the reason Nort was included was because he adds an element of the absurd to the Green Lantern Corps and it's this absurdity and unpredictability that the Guardians are trying to capture in their well, I guess their new mission. Then on the same page, panel five, we got oh no, uh is leaving. Uh, he was such a fleshed-out character, and I really began... Oh, wait, I'm sorry, we knew really nothing of him other than he was a rock person, kind of like Brick. So I guess we won't get to follow the exploits of Ah-Ah anymore in the Greenland Lantern comics. Sad. However, fortunately, on panel 7, we've got an instant replacement for him as the uh, character Percival of the Little People, who was in the... Green Lantern book, Ganthet's tale, has come to replace aw, So, as soon as one leaves, and another one takes over their place. So, or takes their place. So, that's good on them. Then, page 22, panel three, we get of a bit of a coloring error, and I don't know if they just didn't color it in, not or what. But the character in here looks like it's supposed to be John Stewart, except his uh, skin tone is the same as Hal's in the picture. It's not the uh, darker black skin tone that they'd usually have for John. So it's weird, because he's got the John uniform, he looks like a completely different Lantern, so it's just a weird coloring error there. And then, finally, the uh, big wrap-up we get is this argument about absurdity, which John tries to relate to Hal, and basically the the dialogue goes, John saying, you ever read Kierkegaard, Hal, and Hal, of course, replies What do you think? And John replies back right. Well, I won't even ask you if you've read an old Roman name, Origin. They both have the idea that human salvation comes down to believing that one man dead on a cross is absurd, but they were both Christians. Why? I believe they said because it is absurd. And that's a pretty heady thought for a for a comic book. And not only does it deal with the religious aspects of whether or not believing that one person's death could absolve an entire, well, entire races, an entire world's sins, but it also deals with the uh, concept of can you actually trust these guardians, these omnipotent beings and what they're telling you? And basically it's saying in both cases you have to drop your preconceptions and simply rely on faith, which is, again, a pretty impressive message for a uh, funny book. But that's what Green Lantern seems to be doing right now, and they're doing it very well. But that finishes up my notes for the Green Lantern issue. If you're wanting to come back to an issue that's going to be a bit more, well, not a bit more, but a bit less cerebral and a bit more fun stick around after these promos and we'll be coming back with my review of guy Gardner number four which is about a complete 180 from the sort of well braininess and headiness of this issue
1: just once in a lifetime does a podcast come along that pushes the boundaries of the medium that redefines what it is to be an internet radio broadcast. That touches us, reaches into us, inspires us, teaches us. That causes us to re-examine just who we are and why we are. That expands our horizons that makes us completely rethink our destiny in this cosmos and our place in the grand design just once in a lifetime but while we're all waiting for that podcast to be invented why not give a listen to Hey Kids Comics Hey Kids Comics is a smart, fresh, and hilarious podcast that looks at all kinds of fun and interesting topics related to the ever evolving world of the comic book art form. You can find Hey Kids Comics at APLayland.potomatic.com. That's Hey Kids Comics. Sorry. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer, in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman of the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com.
0: And we are back. So let's go ahead and get to our coverage of Guy Gardner number four, which is cover dated January 1993 with a release date on December 8th of 1992. Cover price this time was $1. twenty-five US, $1. fifty Canada, and 60 p UK. Title was Golden Boy. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler Joe Staton, anchor Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Living large, Guy Gardner is flaunting his newfound fame and fortune amongst the throngs of fans that are surrounding. A reporter asks Guy is using his ring to make the money which is a question Guy doesn't take kindly to. But before he can pummel the pandering press corps, Bucky Sharp, Guy's press agent, steps in, telling him not to alienate the media, or to punch them either. Guy acquiesces and tells the crowd of his new employment, with the pale-indrued millip, his pummeling of numerous alien foes, and the riches they gave to him in the form of rare gemstones. And with the money he got from selling him, he moved out of General Clory's apartment and into a place on the Upper East Side. Plus, he was able to pay Bucky's salary, which will help him promote himself even more. Suddenly, a shot rings out and Guy falls to the street. Wondering if Guy is alright, a nearby police officer examines him to see if he's hurt. But this being the mean streets of New York City, Guy had the ring roar protecting him. And rising up, he dashes skyward in search of the sniper. Creating a ring construct, son, Guy blinds the sniper, who's in the employ of Goldface. Wanting answers, Guy flings the would-be killer across the city skyline, but before he can become Road Pizza, a slide made of ice catches the perp and deposits him safely in a snowbank. Flying down, Guy confronts his former girlfriend, Ice, with the evidence that the sniper was using gold-jacketed bullets to try and kill him. Asking how she got from the JLA embassy to the scene so quickly, Guy realizes that Ice was still pining over him. Ice tries to deny it as Guy prods her about her fondness for Superman. Saying that she doesn't want to talk about the deceased Man of Steel, Guy tells, or Ice tells Guy to relate to her, the reason Goldface is after him. Guy tells Ice that after his bouts with the bruisers from space, Guy came back to Earth for round two with Hal Jordan. But Bucky Sharp thought that fighting how would make Guy look like a sore loser. Instead, Bucky suggests that Guy take down the big bad that the Green Lantern couldn't. And Guy has one in mind, Goldface. Trying to get the ring to track the villain for him, Guy gets nose from nowhere, as the ring is still speaking in Kuragarian. As an alternative, Guy flies to the carnival, where Carrie Limbo worked, to try and get some information out of her. What he did get was a subpoena from the carnival manager was suing Guy for the damages he caused. Guy only increases any damages he incurred by punching out the manager before telling Carrie to help him find Goldface. Carrie tells Guy she sees a trail heading out of Vegas, and Guy prepares to head out after getting the appropriate wardrobe for the town. He's also aided by some newspaper plans about the threat of Goldface called in by Bucky, which forced Goldface to send an assassin to take out Guy. Encouraged that Guy's behavior might be a ruse to make Goldface take more notice of him, Tora asks Guy if, if that was why he was hanging out with those women. Callously, Guy tells Ice that they were just a few of the many trying to be Gra- Guy's new girlfriend, which surprisingly doesn't sit well with Ice. The Scandinavian superheroine blasts her former love with a torrent of coal, but Guy just turns it to steam with his ring. Telling Tora that he's got bigger fish to fry, Guy takes off to find Goldface, as Ice begs for him to talk with her, because she still believes that they have something to talk about. Well, we're finally getting back to the revenge plot that stemmed out of the One Angry Guy storyline. Plus, we're also getting to see Guy alienating himself more. This time, not only with Carrie Limbo, but Ice as well. There's a line in the book that kind of sums up what Guy is, or why Guy is behaving this way, but we'll get to that in a few. Let's start the notes with the cover. Uh, it's a really dynamic shot of Guy flying at the sniper who's been shooting the gold tip bullets at him. The ring or that's the surrounding Guy, it isn't uniform, it's sort of kind of like Guy's on fire. It gives him a real feel of energy and power. Plus, there's a lot of neat cover copy on the, uh, well, obviously on the cover, with the uh, idea of this is going to be a story of Guy versus Ice, and also in the uh, bottom right-hand corner, there's the uh, rectangle, where you might see it normally up in the top left corner underneath the indesia and the prices. This time, it's a black background with the bleeding uh, Superman ass, so you've kinda gotta wonder what that's coming from. I'm certain you all know what it's from. Page one, you've got Guy Gardner, the ultimate superhero pimp, and I think what makes it for him is, is the giant almost Abraham Lincoln stovepipe hat, or stovepipe hat, and the uh, the fur pimp coat. Guy is, is styling, I guess, in that sort of, oh, 1970s pimp type thing, and the uh, two floozies by, him saw, by his side definitely uh, perpetuate that stereotype as well. Page 3, Panel 6 The outfit that Guy is heading up, the protection agency that the palindrodalip or whatever are going to be using Guy for, are taking the name of the Gardeners of the Universe. Really, the Gardeners of the Universe. That's going to invoke fear into the hearts of alien races all around. Not the best choice. Plus, I notice they're really accentuating this scar on Guy's uh, upper left temple. I'm pretty certain it's relating to the brain injuries he's had when he was in a coma, or when he was basically blasted into... Well, I'm not certain if it's the Phantom Zone, or whatever alternate dimension he was in, but... They're accentuating it, and I think it's in a way to show that Guy really isn't in his right mind. This isn't the guy that he was originally plotted out to be. This is a guy who's kind of messed up because of all of the beatings and stuff that he's been through. So maybe they're trying to accentuate that with the uh, artwork here. And speaking of artwork, just as a sort of aside... Um, Terry Beatty, who's the anchor for this issue, who's the anchor for a lot of these issues ongoing, I didn't know what he had done before this. Uh, actually, he he didn't do much before it, checking out, like, Mike's Amazing World at DC Comics. I, being the kind of noob that I am, uh, mistook Terry Beatty for Terry Austin, I thought, he was the inker, but Terry Beatty in his own right is a great inker who eventually went on to do the Batman Animated or the Batman Adventurous comic. So, he was doing that sort of uh, inking for the very stylized cartoony style, which definitely works in this book with Staten doing the sort of cartoony look for the characters here. It works really well, and it blends well with Joe Staten's uh, art style, so Uh, Kudos to Terry Beatty, really liking him as the anchor here. Page 5, panel 3, we see a tiny bit of the old guy peeking through, as he's saying that he's willing to set up a library for General Glory, and to fund his crime-fighting work. This is another example of Guy wanting to do the right thing, but just, again, not really certain how to do it. General Glory is an old-school person who believes superheroics are not supposed to earn you money, and... Guy's opinions are just 180 from that. And Guy feels that if he can help General Glory by giving him money to do his superheroics, this is him in some way doing right. And it just goes to the idea that for whatever reason, whether it be the brain injury, whether it be his upbringing or whatever, Guy just doesn't have the social skills to effectively do what's right in the way that other superheroes do. Then on page 6, panels 1 through 5, we get Bucky Sharp saying that Guy has a meeting with Madonna. And everyone thinks, well, Madonna, it's obviously the rock star Madonna. And what Bucky is actually steering Guy towards is a fundraiser for a local church in order for the church to get a statue of the Virgin Mary. Now, initially, Guy's kind of well, this is kind of deceptive, but I like the way you're working. I think that Guy is actually approving of this course of action, and I think Bucky's trying to steer Guy in the right direction, and I think subconsciously Guy wants to do this as well. He Uh, He would have this open persona that would let people think that, oh, I'm going out with Madonna, but really he wants to do little things to help out society. He wants to do the right thing, and I think Bucky's here now to try and steer him in that direction. Then on page 8, panel 5, we get Guy using his ring to create a sun to uh, shine light on the person who was trying to assassinate him. Hmm. I wonder... Would it been possible for Guy to create a sun during that whole final night thing? Hmm, I bet he could have done that, provided his ring wasn't taken away or deactivated by someone. Hmm. Page 11, panel 2, and a nice piece of continuity. We see Ice here, and uh, because of the whole tussle with the Justice League and uh, Doomsday... We also see that Ice has her hand or her arm in a sling, so it's nice that they're keeping continuity going through the books there. Then on page 13, panel 1, we get Ice asking Guy, you know, why he isn't wearing his wristband, you know, the black one, Morning Superman, and all I can think is, well, maybe Guy didn't make it to the comic book shop to get Superman 75 in time. Or maybe he just ordered the newsstand edition. Then on the same page, panel four, we get Guy acting out because he feels that Ice chose Superman over him. And it's another great piece of art by Staten where you can tell, even from this rear profile of Guy, that he's hurting. He feels rejected by Ice. And Guy actually says he didn't want to see what happened to Superman happen, but he does feel slighted by ice because of the way she kind of fawned over Superman and admittedly in the Justice League of America books ice really was just all I hate to say it, moist in the panties for soups. so you could see how Guy would be a little jealous about that and page 16 as Guy goes back to meet with Carrie Limbaugh to try and find Goldface Carrie Limbo, who was Guy's former love, who truly and passionately cared about Guy, is now realizing that he's a changed man, that this isn't the guy that she knew. And you've got to hope that Jones is setting up an arc where Guy is going to sort of reform from his ridiculous, over the top, you know, macho self and come back and be the hero, but also be the the, for lack of a better term, the kinder and gentler guy that everyone who knew him uh, enjoyed his company for. Skipping ahead a bit to uh, page 20, Guy tells uh, Ice about the girls who were hanging off of him that they had actually finished their written exam to be his girlfriend, but now they had to finish well. You know the exam that comes after the written exam. <laughs> yep, it's the scantron. No, no, it's not. You know what it is. It's filthy. Then on page 22, panels 2 and 3, we get Guy pretty much explaining why he's acting this way, and I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Guy says, Everybody, sorry, Everybody's always been saying how God has got no feelings. No humanity. Well, if that's the way they want to treat me... I'll give them the gun that they want. So carry a torch for your late, great blue boy. Just don't ask me to help you light it. So, essentially, Guy is acting out because people have come to believe that he's this brash, over-the-top, anti-hero. So, rather than being the person that he feels that he is, he's having to put up this persona that's been projected upon him by the rest of the community. People think he should be this ridiculous, over-the-top butt-kicker, so he's going to give them that character. And I think internally he's struggling with whether or not he should be that, or whether or not he should be the person that he actually feels that he is. Again, this is a really good beginning for the shading in of the character of Guy Gardner, and basically giving him more of a dimension... Than what you'd see in the Justice League books. They're actually getting into the depth of the character, and I'm really liking it. Again, Jones, and now uh, coming up, there's going to be Will Jacobs is going to be helping with scripting as well, are going to flesh out the character even more. And here in about a couple of months, we'll be getting into the great Chuck Dixon story, which is going to tell about Guy's early life, which is really going to flesh out the character a lot, and I can't wait to get to that. But that ends my notes for this issue. Uh, both of the books have about the same ads, so let's go ahead and check out and see what they have to sell for us this time. And on the front inside cover, they've got WWF Superstars View Game Mania. And they've got Super WrestleMania for both the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. They've got WrestleMania Steel Cage Challenge for the NES. And uh, WWF Superstars 2 for the Game Boy. And got a... Uh, pretty flamboyant picture of it, the Macho Man Randy Savage, and I'm guessing this might be the Ultimate Warrior. I'm not really certain. My my uh, wrestling knowledge is pretty weak when it comes to anything past uh, the Rowdy Roddy Piper phase. So, I know this is Macho Man Randy Savage, though. So, uh, the WWF games are fun. Unless you're playing, you know, like the Canadian Mountie few pages in, we get kryptonite not included. There is only one Superman, only from Sunsoft. And it's for the Sega Genesis version of Superman. Now, I've recently been going to a website called uh, www.ssega.com It's ssega.com, And they're an emulator site, and they have a bunch of these Sega Genesis games from the 90s and on. And I actually went and played the Superman game, and It's awful. You kind of wish Kryptonite was included so you could effectively kill this game. Now, that being said, the Death and Return of Superman game is actually pretty fun. So, unfortunately, this isn't that game. I mean, it's not Superman 64 bad, but it wasn't fun at all. Then the next page, we get a sort of eerie tombstone with the Superman symbol on there saying, Here lies Earth's greatest hero. And I'm looking at it, it doesn't look like it gives, uh, dates on there, but there's days where their birth date and death date could be put. And it's, where were you when Superman died? And it's for an ad for Doomsday, the death of Superman trading cards. Um, Michael and Jeffrey over at From Crisis to Crisis have been covering these, and I think they've really enjoyed the cards so far. A lot of them, I think, come from cover art, and then there's some stuff that has, uh, interior scenes as well, so check out From Crisis to Crisis. Good podcast. Then later on, we get Out of Body Experience, thirty nine ninety nine, and it's another goofy ad for the Final Fantasy game for the Super Nintendo Mystic Quest. Yeah, if it's not cows or brain surgery, it's a pair of t-shirts, shorts, and shoes with nobody there being used to advertise this game. Obviously, they weren't too happy with the gameplay or the graphics, otherwise they might have shown some of that. Next page, we get an ad, or a half-page ad, for Twin City Books and all their uh, back issues and prices, and at the bottom of the page, we get the Epic Battle, now in one volume, Batman vs. Predator, the Collected Edition. And I don't remember the Batman vs. Predator books, but I remember the Batman vs. Alien books, and... I'm not certain if they were actually a Dark Horse crossover. I'm going to assume they were, because I think Dark Horse was covering the Aliens and the Predator books at the time. So uh, it was a pretty neat crossover with the Aliens ones, and I can only expect that the Predator ones was just as good. They don't list any creators in the ad, but checking Mike's world of amazing DC Comics, we've got writer Dave Gibbons and penciler Andy Kubert and inker and letterer Adam Kubert. So there's some pretty good talent behind this. Uh, Never read it, but uh, with those people behind it, it was probably a pretty good book. A few more pages in, we got a picture of a tank depicting World War II, a picture of an Apache attack helicopter depicting Desert Storm, and then a picture of a crappy tank and a crappy helicopter depicting Firepower 2000, quote-unquote the evolution of power for the Super Nintendo system. It's one of those fighting games that I think was lost in obscurity, and it's another Sunsoft game, so effectively, Sunsoft here are 0 for 2 for this book, so there you have it. Next page after, we get the typical hodgepodge page, which is trying to get you to learn to draw superheroes again, but down at the bottom, we've got an ad for Detective Comics, with Batman's Never Been So Bold, with creators Mike Netzer, Scott Hanna, Chuck Dixon, showing you the Cape Crusader like you've never seen him before. So, pick up the tech of comics if you're living in 1992 right now. Then, next page, oh boy, we get the American Comics and Entertainment uh, ad, which has a great picture of the, the dead Superman. I can't remember. It looks like it's from 75. It looks like it might be... Like a piece of ad for seventy five, but it's got the hot comics of which uh, some of them are Aliens Gold, which is running for twenty five bucks. Wow, amazing Spider Man, Archer and Armstrong. Let's see, Fantastic Four. Let's look at some of the Solar. Okay, Wildcats, of course. Lobo's back. Can't have a uh, hot comic without Lobo being in there. Young Blood, X-O Man of War. Uh, they've got Star Wars number one. I'm not certain if it's the Marvel Star Wars number one, if it might be the Dark Horse one. But interesting that it's hot at the time. So there you have it. Then the next page we get kind of an interesting ad. Uh, the top uh, copy says, "You might not think it's your problem." and it has the Tim Drake Robin sitting in the Batcave saying, This kid at school, Alfred, word got out that he has the HIV virus, and Alfred replies, The one that can lead to AIDS. Robin quips back, Right, well, everyone's avoiding him like they're afraid of him. Of course, Alfred says, How unfortunate, especially since there's no danger of contracting the disease through casual contact. Robin then replies, But kids don't know that everybody tells us. It's like adults think we can't handle it or something. They don't know that more teenagers are being infected with AIDS by, than any other group. And then as uh, Robin heads out, uh, Alfred asks, where are you going, Master Tim? And in next scene, we see Robin swinging out over the city saying, to get some facts. And it's an effective ad for uh, the National AIDS Hotline. It may be a bit, bit preachy and a bit simplistic, but but at least it's getting the idea out there that people should talk about this, that people should be knowledgeable about what's going on with this disease, and rather than shun people who might have HIV to try and understand that they shouldn't be pariahs. Uh, It was an effective piece of, uh, well, not really propaganda, but information to be put out there, And, uh, it's also pretty good artwork. It's a nice way for DC to get information out there and not be, well, at least in this ad, overly preachy. We'll see what the track record for the ads that appear after this turn out to be. Finally, the letter column again has a bunch of letters praising or basically criticizing the Guy Gardner Reborn series, and I guess Guy Gardner is answering the letters back in his own indemitable fashion. Some of them are pretty darn humorous, uh, especially the ones where they're kind of negative to guy. Guy gets in his uh well, he gets in his own punches back at them. then on the inside back cover, we've got the critics are hooked, which is surprising because the game didn't look all that good. It's an advertisement for the Super Nintendo version of Hook, the Steven Spielberg film about Peter Pan and Captain James Hook. Film was good. Game. I don't recall it being so good. And then the outside back cover, we've got Get Em By The Crosshairs. X-Zone. This truly ex-cellent or what. <laughs> yes, now you can exterminate your enemies on a truly expert style. <sighs> Yeah, it's one of those extreme games from the Super Nintendo, or for the Super Nintendo of this time, that is completely forgettable. Uh, They're also advertising games like uh, Phalanx and the wonderful uh, Dr. Franken, which I think we covered last time. But that's it for ads. Again, neither this issue nor the issue of Green Lantern have been in any way reprinted at all. Which, again makes me sad. But what doesn't make me sad is the fact that in seven days, we'll be back with another issue of Green Lantern and another issue of Guy Gardner. So folks, thank you all for listening. I hope you come back next Friday, and we'll catch you all then. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted by their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dotlibsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan to the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and be sure to leave a review. I'd love to read it on the next show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Faith by the rap metal band Limp Biscuit. If you'd like to listen to more Limp Biscuit, I don't know why you would, you can go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click on the Amazon.com banner at the top of the page, which will redirect you to Amazon.com. There you can search around for all sorts of Limp Biscuit music, including songs like Nookie and break stuff. I can't believe I'm advertising Glint Biscuit.